I'm not on again. Oh, there we go. I am on. It's fine, mate. That's one all now. I want to ask a question. Uh, what is the thing that you wouldn't trade for anything? What's the thing that everything else is like rubbish when you compare it to that? What is that thing for you? For my six-month-old daughter, Marley, it is this Jamie Oliver basting brush. I know what you're thinking, Jamie Oliver, she's got expensive taste already, don't we know it. Uh, this is a video of her, we'll make sure that the sound is up nice and loud for this. You press right one more time, or click it. We had it this morning. Is there a tech genius who's next to, can be up the back, you can press this. There we go. There's a mouse. Here we go. When you get out this basting brush in front of Marley, even when she's holding on to other good toys and other good things, she'll chuck them away and go, nothing compares to the Jamie Oliver basting brush. You can absolutely make her day if you bring this thing out so she can spend time with it. It is glorious and fantastic to see. What is the thing for you? The thing that you wouldn't trade for anything. The thing that when you compare it to everything else, everything else just is like rubbish. The most of us will have different answers to that question, right? Because we're all different people. But in the passage we're looking at tonight, the Apostle Paul says he's found the true thing that makes everything else look like rubbish when you compare it to that. And he says, it's not just a subjective thing that this is just the best thing for me. He says, this is by far the best thing for every person. And when you hear it, you'll want it if you understand what it is. It's an item that's got to do with the biggest question in life. It's going to impact the answer to the biggest question, which is this. How do you get right with God? How do you get right with God? Now, why is that the biggest question in life? And why is the thing that impacts the answer to that question, why is that the very best thing you can have? Well, it's because the very best thing you can have has to kind of impact you for the most good in the biggest way possible. Right? If you've got something that impacts you for a bit of good in a small way, well then, it can be a good thing, but it's not going to be the best thing. See, Marley loved her basting brush, but what does it really give her? It gives her a bit of happiness, most days, at the moment. When she turns 20, I doubt it's still going to give her that same thrill. At least I hope it doesn't. It's not going to help her to deal with any of the... Whoa, this is the, the power of God tonight. All right, we'll see what happens with the uh, baptism. Small chance that we uh, need to sprinkle inside rather than fully dunk outside. I'm told if we can't see lightning, we'll go ahead, even if it's raining. But we'll see what happens when it comes 6.15. The basting brush, it's a good thing, but it's not the thing, right? It gives you a bit of good, but not the most good. It's not going to make everything else look like rubbish. See, the thing that does that is the deciding thing when it comes to the question, how do you get right with God? Because that really is the question that impacts the quantity and the quality of your life the most. Nothing else is on that scale. See, in terms of quantity, whether you're right or not with God determines your eternal future. There isn't anything with more quantity than that. 
When it comes to the quality of your life, heaven and hell are on the line. The best life and the worst life depend on whether or not you are right with God or not. It's massive. The thing that determines whether you're right with God or not is the thing that matters and makes everything else look like rubbish when you compare it to that, even good things. And so let's see what Paul has to say. Let's see what he's found in Philippians chapter 3. Paul starts by telling us what it's not, and then he tells us what it is. So how do you get right with God? Point one, it's not by religion. Have a look at verse one. Finally, brothers, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Paul says that what he's about to tell them is something for their safety. He wants to keep them from harm. He wants to keep them safe. Safe from being not right with God. Safe from hell. Safe from judgment. Safe from thinking that the wrong thing is going to make them right with God only in the end to find out that it doesn't. Paul wants to keep them safe. And so what does he say to try and keep them safe? Have a look at verse 2. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What? Look out for dogs. My brother adopted a dog two days ago, to be honest, and he is super cute. His name's Archie. He's the cutest dog in the world. Is my brother now not safe? Is he not right with God? Like, what's, what's, what's Paul saying? What's going on? Let me explain. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators. Paul's using three words to have a go at one group of people. One group of people who are saying that you need to be religious by doing certain things in order to be right with God. That's the key message. Particularly, they're saying that you need to be religious according to the Jewish Old Testament law to be right with God. Let me show you. So, the key is in that last phrase. Have a look. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In the Old Testament, there's a bunch of rules and laws, and they're about to how to relate, relate, relate rightly to God as one of His people. Uh, and one of the central signs that you were one of the people who followed these rules was that you were circumcised. But the key is, what uh, doing those things never made you one of God's people. See, God actually saved them first. He made them His people based on nothing they did, and then said, Here's how to live in right relationship with me. See, God rescued Israel out of slavery, not because they did anything, but out of God's great love for them. He said, I'm going to make you my people, and only then, after you've done nothing, I will teach you how to relate rightly to me. But now here in Philippi, the letter that Paul's writing to the Philippians, there are people saying that you need to do all the religious things from the Old Testament in order to be right with God. And to show that you're really, really, really committed, you need to get circumcised. Paul says, look out for people who say that. Being religious doesn't make you right with God. Paul says, anyone who tells you otherwise, they're dogs, they're evil. You see, even more clearly, really, the heart behind what they're saying at the end of the next verse. Have a look at verse 4. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and 
put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, these guys aren't the real people of God, we are. That's what he means when he says, we are the circumcision. He's really saying, we are the people of God. And then he says, the people who are truly right with God, they put no confidence in the flesh. Now, that's really the heart behind what religion is all about. Religion is about being confident that you're right with God on the basis of what you do in your body, in your flesh, your actions. And for the people Paul's talking to, their religion is about following the right rules, and then they think they'll be right with God. But most religions, both the kind of official ones and the ones that we come up with, are about doing the right things, saying the right things, and then you'll be right in the end, right? Paul says, you will not be safe in the end if you're tricked into thinking anything like that. Don't put any confidence in the things that you do to be right before God. Big statement. How does Paul know that? Now, sure, he can say big things like that, but why should we trust him? Well, it's because Paul is the leading expert on being religious. Have a look at the next bit of verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Paul says, if it's possible to be confident in what you do to be right before God, then I've got more reason to be confident than anyone, because I've done more religious things than everyone. What are his stats? What has Paul actually done on his stat card? Have a look, verse 5. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That is, he's got the sign of the religious people according to the Old Testament. He's of the people of Israel. He belongs to the chosen people of God. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That is, he can trace his ancestry back to the important tribe of Israel, where the first Jewish king came from. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the best of the best. As to the law, a Pharisee. Pharisees were the elite religious rule keepers that made up extra rules that weren't even in the Bible so that they could do more and more religious things. Paul says he was one of those, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. When he thought Christians were in the wrong, he was so committed that he didn't hesitate to put them in prison. He was a religious zealot. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. When it comes to doing things to be right with God, when it comes to being religious, Paul was as good as you can get, better than you. Paul is the leading expert on trying to be religious and do good things to be right with God. And how does he say it went for him? What does he sum it up as? He says, look out for anyone who does or says something like that. He says, trust me, being religious, putting confidence in what you do will never make you right with God. Now, I'm guessing that there's a few different kinds of people in the room tonight. Uh, You might be someone who tries really hard to be good, maybe through religious things, maybe through trying to be a good person. This will hit hard for you. But here is the most religious, doing good things guy there is, better than you. He says, this is not the answer. But he says, there is an answer. And when you see it, you won't want to trade it for anything in the world. 
but maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone who hasn't, hasn't really thought about it heaps, but basically if someone asked you, you'd think, well, as long as I'm kind of better than 50% on the goodness scale when I get to the end of life, then kind of whatever happens on that side, I'll probably be right. If the good outweighs the bad in the end, you'll be right. Again, Paul says, that is not going to work. Paul is higher than anyone on the goodness scale, and he says, this is not the way. But maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe you are someone who knows that you're not good enough, and you feel the weight of it, but you don't know what to do about it. You don't know what the answer is, but you feel the kind of crushing weight of it. Paul's about to give an answer that is so beautiful. Just hang in. We're going to get there in a sec. But lastly, you might be one of those people who know that you're not good enough and you know the right answer, but I reckon you slip into this danger even then. See, the thing is that we are all wired to kind of, the way that life works is that you get out what you put in, right? You reap what you sow. That's kind of what happens in all the spaces of life. If you want to look good, you have to exercise, you have to eat well, you've got to watch the new Chris Hemsworth documentary. If you do, then you'll be that, and then if you don't, you won't. You get what you put in. If you want a good marriage, you have to put in the time, you have to do nice things, you have to sacrifice things for the other person. If you do it, then you will, but if you don't, then you won't. If you want to be good at anything, you have to do the right thing, you've got to put in the time, put in the work. If you do, then you'll have it, if you don't, then you won't. That is the way our world works, right, when it comes to all these things. And it seeps into how we think about our relationship with God. We put confidence in what we do even when you, if you really know that, you know, I can't make myself right with God anyway. Here's something that I do. Maybe this will ring true for you. Sometimes if I feel a bit guilty before God or like things aren't going super well, I can take a few days where I feel like I don't come to Him or almost like I can't come to Him as much and then if I've kind of been good or feel a bit less sinful for a few days, then I can kind of come back to Him at the end of that like everything's good and kind of made up for it's almost really like I've tried to pay something off by taking a bit of time off and then coming back to Him. Have you ever done that? At that point, how I'm relating to God and how, I, how rightly I think I'm going with Him is based on what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. It's totally wrong, but you just kind of slip into this way of thinking. For some people, when I ask the question, would God accept you? Or are you right with God? The things that come to your mind all start with I. Like you'd never maybe say it out loud, but you think, I've given up so much for him, of course I'm right with him. Or you think, I serve and I do so many good things, of course I'm right with him. Or it's, I go to church regularly, of course I'm right with him. The thing is, if what you think starts with I, then Paul says it will never make you right with God. See, what's the thing that makes everything else look like rubbish when you compare it to that? Well, it's got to do with the question, how do you get right with God? And the leading expert on religion says, it is not religious works that make you right with God. You cannot put confidence in anything that you do. So what is it? Point two, have a look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
Paul uses an image from the banking world about kind of profits and losses to describe how valuable the item is that makes you right with God. He says when it comes to being right with God, Paul says he's got a bunch of stuff that's in the, the profit column, in the gain column. His religious stats are kind of like profits on his spiritual bank sheet. But he says when you compare those to the best thing, by comparison, they're all just losses. They're like nothing by comparison. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Elon Musk, right? Trust me, this is going to help make Philippians 3 very clear. Just trust me for a second. I want you to imagine that you are Elon Musk. If you don't know who that is, I want you to imagine that you're someone very, very rich. And I want you to imagine that you're Elon and you're looking at your bank statement. You've got the profits and loss column there, and you can see all of the profits that you own. You've got your mansions, you've got your cars, you've got your private jet, uh, you've got, you now own Twitter. Is that a profit or a loss thing? I'm not sure, but it's there, it's on your bank sheet. You are massively rich and you've got heaps and heaps and heaps, all you could ever want in the profit column of your bank sheet. I just, just seriously close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you own that much stuff. What would that be like? Like, imagine what you could do if that was you. Now, I want you to imagine that there's one more thing that you need to add into your bank statement. You're going to add it to the profit column, and this one item is so much greater than everything else in the profit column that by comparison, you need to put it and count it as a loss compared to this thing. That would be staggering, right? Private jet, chuck that across. Twitter, chuck that across. That's what Paul is saying here. But instead of worldly wealth in the profit column, he's talking about spiritual wealth. So what is that thing? Have a look at verse 8 again. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The very best thing you can gain and have in your spiritual profit column isn't a thing it's a person. <coughs> Knowing Christ, Paul says. Now that is a massive statement, isn't it? It's a huge call. But see, it's not just Paul who's saying it. We've heard three stories already tonight, and we're going to get to Ben, of people sharing how God has worked in their life. And did you hear them talk about Jesus? Did you hear how they elevate Jesus to be he is the best thing in their life, and they're not making it up, they're not lying, that they found the best thing you can have that makes everything else, even good things, look like rubbish in comparison. They genuinely think that knowing Jesus is the best thing you can have. Why? Why is that? It's because of what knowing Jesus is and what knowing Him gives you. It's because of what knowing Jesus is and what He gives you. See, what is it to know Jesus? Well, it's not just knowing facts about Jesus, like he's a kind of a collectible Pokemon card, and I know the stats. It's about knowing him and being known by him. It's to be in a relationship with him. It's a beautiful thing. Why? Why is that good? There's millions of reasons, but Paul picks up on one of them. It's because of what you gain by being in relationship with him. See, what happens when you gain Christ and are found in him? Verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things 
and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The key is that being in a relationship with Jesus means that you go from having a righteousness of your own to a righteousness that comes from God through Christ. What is that? What is righteousness? To be righteous is to be right with God. And the Bible's clear that trying to be right with God by your own effort doesn't work. You can't be good enough. The Bible's word for that is sin. We are not perfect before God. We never will be. We are not right with Him. The Bible says that, but we also know it in our experience to be true, right? If I asked you, you tell me you are not perfect. I know that you're not. You can't be righteous on your own, but by knowing Christ, you can have the righteousness that comes from God. God will take the effort upon Himself to make you right with Him. How? Well, He does something on your behalf, something you could never do. See, our sin means that we can't be right with God. It means we deserve death and hell and judgment. But out of His great love for you, God sent His Son, Jesus, to die in your place to take the sin, death, and judgment that you deserve so you can be right with God, so you can have life and heaven and salvation forever. It is a mind-blowing thing that when you gain Christ, you gain all of that. And when you gain it, it makes everything else look like rubbish in comparison. Mansions, what is that compared to gaining Christ? Do you see? So how do you get it? How do you gain Christ so that what He's done gets added to your spiritual bank balance? Verse 9. Verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It's through faith in Christ. Which at one level just kind of sounds like a different religious thing you have to do, right? But it's not. See, it's a little bit like when you're drowning. I don't know if any of you had a drowning experience before, but if you're drowning and there's a lifeguard nearby and they kind of throw that life ring to you, if you hold on to that and get saved and you kind of get out of the pool, do you tell your friends, hey, I was drowning, but I saved myself, don't worry, I did it? No. You say, someone else did all the work, I just held on to this little thing, someone saved me. It's the same with Jesus. To be right with God, He's done everything for us, we just need to trust Him in what He's done, and you will receive all the benefits that come with knowing Jesus. You can experience the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord. I can tell you that has been my experience, and they'll tell you that has been the experience of TJ, Joel, Nick, and Ben. Do you see the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? So there's so many good things that are out there, aren't there? Family, the beach, travel, experiences to be had, they are good things to enjoy. But none of those things can give you what is best for you. You can have all of those things and yet still face God on the last day as your enemy. It's good to enjoy those things, but when you compare them to knowing Jesus, it's rubbish. If you don't know Jesus yet, it is great that you're here. You're in the right place. We love having you at Wild Street. 
I want to say it's worth finding out more. It's worth finding out why so many people in this room and around the world would say that Jesus is the best thing that they have. It's worth exploring more. Come back to church next week. Come along at Christmas. Come in January where we're answering your questions for God, anything you want to ask. Explore more. Come find out more. If you do know Jesus, how good is it? How good is it? Do you live like Jesus is the only thing in your profit column compared to everything else? Or have you forgotten how good he is? Paul wants to say to you, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord. Remember, dwell in, thank God for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That might be something worth recommitting to this week. Because that's the reality. And we need to remember it. So the best thing in the world for my daughter Marley is this Jamie Oliver basting brush. But we know so much more, don't we? We know so much better. Let me read verse 7 and 8 to finish. Then we're going to sing. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Amen. Let's sing.